0: This is the International Anthony Burdus Foundation podcast. It's June 2022, and we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses, with a series of podcasts exploring Anthony Burgess's love of the novel. In this episode, we're looking at Burgess's formative visits to Dublin, and how his passion for Joyce's work led to his television documentary, silence, exile and cunning. In a speech he gave to open the 1985 James Joyce Symposium in Monaco, Anthony Burgess said that he didn't regard himself as a Joyce scholar, although he added that he enjoyed attending conferences and conventions which, as he said, susurrate with the rustle of many learned papers. There was an element of false modesty here. In the 1960s and 70s, Burgess was one of the regular reviewers of new books about Joyce for the Times Literary Supplement at a time when most of the reviews were published anonymously. Though he clearly had an expertise, he didn't always parade it in public places. That said, he often relied on memory when quoting from Joyce's work and sometimes the results were more enthusiastic than accurate. His affection for Joyce is evidenced by the large body of creative and critical work That he produced in response to the work of his Irish hero. Beyond writing two substantial critical books and editing the shorter version of Finnegan's Wake, he also made three television documentaries about Joyce and wrote the words and music for Blooms of Dublin, a full-length musical based on Ulysses broadcast on British and Irish radio for the Joyce centenary in 1982. Burgess was born in Manchester to a family that was partly Irish ...through his grandmother, Mary Ann Finnegan. After the death of his mother, his father married an Irish publican, Margaret Dwyer... ...through whom he acquired two step-cousins, George and James... ...both of whom went on to become priests. His school education was spent entirely at Catholic schools... ...and between the ages of 11 and 18, he was taught by the Zaverian Brothers... ...members of a religious teaching order, most of whom had trained in Ireland... ...including his headmaster, Eugene McCarthy known as Brother Martin. There's a sense in which Burgess's strong affinity with Joyce came out of a conviction that, by reasons of family and education, he was the product of Irish cultural environments. Burgess began his encounter with Joyce at the age of 15, when he acquired copies of chamber music and a portrait of the artist as a young man. He'd been told about Joyce by Bill Deaver, a Liverpool Irishman who was his history teacher at Zaverian College. Mr Dever rightly guessed that Burgess's doubts about Catholicism resembled those of Stephen Dedalus in the novel. A first reading of a portrait confirmed that Joyce's book spoke strongly to Burgess's condition as a renegade Catholic. Unfortunately, he found that the hellfire sermon in Joyce's novel scared him back into the arms of his church. A year later, he summoned the courage to confront the Jesuit priests at the Holy Name Church in Manchester, hoping to persuade them that agnosticism was the thing. This was in 1933, when Burdus was 16 years old, and from that date onwards he described himself, with varying degrees of conviction, as an unbeliever. In other words, reading Joyce helped him to leave the church that Joyce had also left. Arkosh Farkas has shown, in his book about Burdiss and Joyce, that a portrait of the artist is the work which influenced the shape and structure of the first volume of Burgess's autobiography, Little Wilson and Big God, published in 1987, a book which is full of hidden quotations from Joyce and references to his work. Here's a recording of Burgess reading from the opening chapter of A Portrait of the Artist as a young man.
1: Once upon a time, and a very good time it was, there was a moo cow coming down along the road, and this moo cow that was coming down along the road met a nice little boy named Baby Tucku. His father told him that story. His father looked at him through a glass. He had a hairy face. He was Baby Tuckoo. The moo cow came down the road where Betty Byrne lived. She sold lemon plant. Oh, the wild rose blossoms on the little green place. He sang that song. That was his song. Oh, the green wolf botheth. When you wet the bed, first it is warm, then it gets cold. His mother put on the oil sheet. That had the queer smell. his mother had a nicer smell than his father. She played on the piano the sailor's hornpipe for him to dance. He danced trala la 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 tala la tala la 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 la. Uncle Charles and Dante clapped. They were older than his father and mother, but Uncle Charles was older than Dante. Dante had two brushes in her press. The brush with the maroon velvet back was for Michael Davis, and the brush with the green velvet back was for Parnell. Dante gave him a cashew every time he brought her a piece of tissue paper. The Vances lived in number seven. They had a different father and mother. They were Eileen's father and mother. When they were grown up, he was going to marry Eileen. He hid under the table. His mother said, oh, Stephen will apologize. Dante said, oh, if not, the eagles will come and pull out his eyes. Pull out his eyes, apologize. Apologize, pull out his eyes. Apologize, pull out his eyes. eyes. Pull out his eyes.
0: As much as he admired a portrait, Burtis went on to develop a stronger affection for Ulysses and his admiration was partly connected to the fact that Ulysses was banned in the United Kingdom when he first read it. Once again it seems to have been Mr Dever who recommended the book and put a copy into his hands. This was the two-volume Odyssey Press edition published in Germany and smuggled across the channel. For some reason, Burgess read the second of the two volumes first, so his earliest impression of Ulysses was the Oxen of the Sun chapter set in the maternity hospital. He said that the innovations of Ulysses, its formal and linguistic newness, delivered a series of aesthetic shocks from which he never fully recovered. In his middle years, Burgess circulated a number of extravagant stories about his early reading of Joyce. In Here Comes Everybody, for example, he writes... As a schoolboy, I sneaked the two-volume Odyssey press edition into England, cut up into sections and distributed all over my body. This is an appealing story, but it's rather undermined by the knowledge that Burgess didn't travel to the continent until 1939, several years after the British ban on Ulysses had been lifted. If he'd wanted to import a copy of Ulysses in 1939, there would have been no need for smuggling or secrecy. A more plausible account appears in Little Wilson and Big God, where he tells us that Bill Dever was the person who'd brought Ulysses back from Germany. In 1983, Burdis reviewed A Colder Eye, Hugh Kenner's study of modern Irish writers for The Observer. In the course of his review, he mentioned that he'd briefly visited James Joyce in Paris in 1938 and claimed to have discussed the finer points of a portrait of the artist with him. But the suggestion that he'd met Joyce and had a detailed conversation with him was such an outrageous falsehood that even Burgess, a habitual inflator of the truth, shrank from repeating it anywhere else in his published writing. It's not mentioned in his autobiography, for example. And you'll be unsurprised to learn that there is no reference to a meeting with Joyce in Burgess's surviving notebook from the late 1930s. These unreliable fictions about Ulysses and its author demonstrate the extent to which Burgess regarded Joyce as playing a central part in his cultural formation. Forty years later, he was still working under the same shadow when he described his genesis as a writer in his journalism and in the two volumes of autobiography. The earliest of Burgess's commentaries on Joyce took the form of radio talks for the BBC. In 1960, he began contributing short features to Woman's Hour, The first of his Woman's Hour talks was about Molly Bloom, written for a slot in which speakers were asked to choose their favourite heroine. In 1962, he was invited back to select his favourite short story. This time, he spoke about Evelyn from the Dubliners. The following year, Burdis was interviewed about his writing for a documentary titled Sex in Literature. The director of the programme was Christopher Burstall, a pioneering television documentary maker and the Joyce film seems to have emerged from this collaboration. The documentary is called Silence, Exile and Cunning. It's a line from Joyce's portrait of the artist, and it's possible to chart the evolution of this project through a detailed list of expenses prepared by Burgess for his accountant and covering the financial year 1964 to 1965. In fact, during this period, he was working simultaneously on three Joyce projects. Here comes everybody, the first of his critical books completed in August 1964, the BBC film with Christopher Burstall and a shorter Finnegan's Wake commissioned by Faber in November 1964. On the 5th of May 1964 Burgess spent 9 pounds on books for the James Joyce project, the critical commentary he was writing for Faber under the working title Joyce and the Common Man. On the 13th of June he had lunch with Christopher Burstall costing 5 pounds and 8 shillings. On the 22nd of August he delivered the book to Faber and treated his editor to drinks, all detailed as taxable expenses. On the 4th of September he met Burstall again, 4 pounds 10 shillings, and in November they spent 3 days in Dublin scouting locations for the film. Burgess spent 15 pounds on food, drink and taxis. There were another 4 meetings with Burstall Taxis four pounds and fifteen shillings, before they travelled to Dublin again to shoot the film fifty pounds claimed in expenses. The documentary that Burgess made with Burstel, Silence, Exile and Cunning, was commissioned by Hugh Weldon and Jonathan Miller as part of Monitor, the flagship BBC arts series launched in nineteen fifty-eight, which also featured early films by John Berger and Ken Russell. There are three distinct versions of the script in the BBC archive. The first version begins with an ambitious opening sequence. There's a flight of jet planes followed by a dance hall with teenagers doing the twist, after which an atomic bomb explodes, then some images of a race riot, a chorus of Dublin prostitutes, drunk sequences, shots of Joyce's grave in Zurich. What we're reading here are Burgess's first thoughts about what his ideal Joyce film might be, but sadly none of this could be accommodated within the budget. There's also some interesting discussion of Joyce's relationship with Nora. This material was also cut in subsequent drafts. In the second draft, Burgess sets out his credentials for talking about Joyce, foregrounding his status as a Manchester Catholic who grew up in an Irish family. The shooting script indicates a sound mix from Irish voices to Mancunian, at the point where Burgess says this I was born and brought up in Manchester. But I'm a quarter Irish, and I call myself the last of a family of Manchester Catholics. The fact of my Catholicism always drew me to Ireland, and it's Manchester-looking capital. All English Catholics are exiles. They itch towards a home outside England. This is a common theme in Burgess's writing about the Irish community in Manchester. He often says that Manchester is on the way to Liverpool, which is well known to be a suburb of Dublin. In the script he goes on to talk about his self-identification with Joyce.
2: Sooner or later, I had to read Joyce. Ulysses, smuggled in from Paris. Paris, not Dublin. I was drawn to a great Irish Catholic when he'd ceased to be either truly Irish or truly Catholic. He was a renegade. I, myself, at the age of 16, was a renegade. He'd made his world out of the materials from the world he'd rejected. I wanted confirmation that the agonies and elation I knew as a renegade had some sort of artistic significance, meant something.
0: Watching the BBC film again today, the most striking sequence comes when Burgess visits number seven, Eccles Street. When he arrived in Dublin with Christopher Burstall and the crew in February 1965, the fictional home of Leopold and Molly Bloom was in the process of being demolished. Burstall managed to get permission from the city council and the owner of the property to film Inside the House. This pilgrimage to Eccles Street represents a crucial encounter with Joyce and his fictional world. As Burgess stands in the wreckage of Molly Bloom's bedroom, contemplating the missing walls and windows, the camera pans over an empty iron bedstead, and an actor delivers a section from Molly's monologue in voiceover the film provides a melancholy series of images of the last days of Eccles Street. More recently, these images from Burgess's visit have contributed to a three-dimensional digital reconstruction of the house created by Ian Gunn of Edinburgh University. Here's an extract from the film of Burgess speaking inside the Blooms' house on Eccles Street in Dublin.
2: This house will go, a new house will come in its place, a new family will live here, and so perhaps to the end of time. It it's the man whom we still imagine as living in this house, Leopold Bloom, who makes this big affirmation about the continuity of life in the community. He even Bloom prints the community for us. We don't need much. A bit of tolerance, common sense, brotherly love. And in addition, that quality of the creative imagination which the young poet Stephen Dedal has been bringing.
0: Burgess's film was broadcast on BBC One on the 20th of April 1965, and a partial transcript based on the final version of the script was published in The Listener on the 6th of May. When William Trevor was asked to review the programme, he wrote, Mr Anthony Burgess, serious to the point of severity, spoke his own narration in the kind of academic English voice that Dublin street urchins delight in imitating. Rather more notably than in other circumstances and with other weapons, Englishmen and their cameras have a way of being successful when they strike the Irish scene. Silence, Exile and Cunning is the first of three television films that Burgess made about Joyce. Two others followed in 1973 and 1982, and in many ways it's the best. As Christopher Burstall pointed out, it's sometimes difficult to disentangle the figure of Burgess as narrator from the figure of Joyce, who is represented through photographs and a death mask which appears in the final scene. There's a postscript to the story. After Burgess had completed the BBC film, the next novel he wrote was Tremor of Intent, a Cold War spy thriller written in conscious imitation of Joyce. The form of the novel is a deliberate nod to Joyce's Ulysses. Each chapter is written in a different narrative style, a letter, a confession, a memoir and so forth. Tremor of Intent is also a multilingual text in which Burgess makes use of his knowledge of German and of Russian, which had previously been deployed in A Clockwork Orange. In the final chapter, which is set in a Dublin pub, a man named John is seen making a film about James Joyce. There's a puzzle here. Why does Burgess choose to end the novel by presenting a fictionalised version of himself, his real name was John Burgess Wilson, in a novel containing strong, formal echoes of Joyce. Perhaps he wanted to plant the idea that he was one of Joyce's literary inheritors. Though he wasn't alone of his generation in wanting to do this, Burgess worked hard to emulate Joyce in his own novels throughout the 1960s. This is most notable in the fictional language of A Clockwork Orange, a book which might be regarded as a kind of Finnegan's Wake light, written for the benefit of readers who would put up with a certain level of linguistic innovation but weren't prepared to plunge completely into the dream world and dream language of Joyce's final forbidding masterpiece. Nevertheless, and despite his having chosen *Finnegans Wake* as the book he wanted to be cast away with on BBC Radio's Desert Island Discs, it was *Ulysses* that remained Burgess's favourite novel. He said he reread it at least once every year. A few months before he died in 1993 he reviewed Jerry Johnson's edition of the 1922 Ulysses and this was the book that he took into hospital when he was nearing the end of his life. As his wife Liana read passages aloud to him, it's more than possible that his memory went back to that first visit to Dublin in 1965 and the magical experience of standing in the room where Molly Bloom's monologue is supposed to have taken place. Burgess always insisted that Joyce's important message was the affirmation of the human spirit and the artistic impulse. His own writing affirms the same things, even when he's affirming other writers, such as Shakespeare or D.H. Lawrence or James Joyce. So there's only one word with which a podcast about Burgess and Joyce can possibly end, and it's the last word which appears in the text of Ulysses. That word, of course, is yes. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. For more about Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.